Would you turn, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8? And I'm going to do my best to see that you get an early dismissal. Mark, chapter 8. And one verse, verse 36. Mark, chapter 8, and verse 36. For what shall it profit a man? The Lord Jesus here is the speaker. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There's a delightful little biography that I have read once or twice. It is about a gospel preacher named James Campbell who um, came to this country to preach the gospel and had a question that he almost invariably asked people whom he met. The question was, is your soul saved? Is your soul saved? In his biography, he talks actually about seeing a man working on a ladder by the side of the house and came to the base of the ladder and called up to him and he said, is your soul saved? And the man said, what? Is your soul saved? And the man was so intrigued by the question that he climbed down the ladder to ask Mr. Campbell to explain to him what he meant and what it meant to have a soul that was saved. Now, I would like to talk to you about this vital subject and just ask you to think with me about three things. The Lord Jesus is telling us about something that could never happen. He is telling us about something that could actually happen. And he is telling us about something that could certainly happen today. Something that could never happen. You will never gain the whole world. Never. There are people who have had vast chunks of it. And just now they're trying to plot how much Mr. Zuckerberg has of the world. Now you'll understand now, the Lord Jesus isn't speaking here of geography and real estate and owning property. He's talking about the world's possessions and what it can offer, its fame, its wealth, its allurements. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He is reminding us that there is nothing so valuable to you as your eternal well-being. Nothing. Nothing so important as you're ensuring that you will be in heaven forever. If you had that, nothing else would really matter. If you don't have that, nothing else matters. It is the most important issue that every human being faces when he or she comes into the world. Where am I going to be in eternity? I had a wedding out in California some years ago. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in Arizona, California, out west there, but there is a a chain, a restaurant chain um, called In-N-Out. Great hamburgers. And on the bottom of their cups, you know the part of the cup that makes it sit up from the table so it's not sitting flat on the table. On that inside of that cup, there's generally a Bible verse, the reference of a Bible verse. Almost, I would say, from what I hear, almost 85% of the time it's John 3.16. The young woman that I'm telling you about came to hear the gospel, was confronted with all of these thoughts, was eating lunch at an in and out picked up the, the cup, because she knew that there were Bible verses under it, and read the reference that was there, which was a reference in the book of Proverbs about trusting in the Lord. And she says, you know, I sat there. When she wrote for the wedding, when she wrote how she was saved, this is what she said. I came into the world and grew up without realizing that I was facing something of immense importance, immense importance. 
And that is, where was I going to be in eternity? This is what confronts every one of us. And it is foolish to imagine that gaining something in the world will make up for the loss of my soul. Because first of all, we are spirit beings who can never be satisfied with mere physical amenities, comforts, and possessions. You are not a body. You are a soul. You have a body. Pick up the newspaper when somebody dies and the police find the body. They don't find the person. The person is gone. Attend a funeral and you're looking in the coffin. The person is not in the coffin. The wife is not burying her husband. She's burying his body. You are a soul. You will exist as long as God is on his throne. And you will be leaving this world and going into eternity. And as a spirit being, physical things cannot fill the emptiness that sin has created in our hearts. You want to hear about a man who had a huge chunk of the world? His name was Solomon. He was overwhelmingly wealthy. He was incredibly intelligent. He was very, very famous. That man said these words about his life. I hate life. I hate life. It's vanity. It's emptiness. We have some Hebrew scholars here, but I, I, I read the words of a rabbi who said that that statement in Ecclesiastes, vanity, he said the closest you can get to it in English is soap bubbles. Soap bubbles. Try to grab a handful of soap bubbles. That's what Solomon was saying. Vanity of vanities. In this world, everything is like soap bubbles. And, and Solomon knew he was going to leave his wealth behind, his fame, his intelligence. None of that was going to have any bearing on where he would be in eternity. So it is foolish as human beings who are going to exist forever to imagine that I can settle down here and find my happiness in mere things when you and I were made for God. It is foolish because mere things cannot make us happy facing the predicament that is before us. The predicament that we face is this. Nothing that we have is permanent. Nothing that we own is permanent. If you said to me, where do you live? And I gave you my address, 117 West Cottage Avenue, Haddonfield, New Jersey. And you went on to say, well, do you, do you own your house or do you rent it? Does a bank own it? Do you own it? Do you no, no, we, we, we own it now. We, we paid it off a couple of years ago. And I talk about owning my house. Do you know what? A hundred years from now. Somebody's going to own 117 West Cottage. Somebody's going to say to them, is that your house? Yeah, that's, that, that's my house. I'm just, I'm just renting it, see? I'm just a steward of what somebody else is one day going to own because nothing is permanent. I'm not taking anything with me into eternity. And so you will understand how foolish it is to fixate on this world when nothing in this world is going to go with me into that next world. Pardon what, uh, uh, to me, I think is... Um, somewhat simplistic illustration, but imagine if you were on a sinking ship. Now, this is the anniversary today of the sinking of the Andrea Doria, which is a fascinating story. Imagine, imagine if you were on the Andrea Doria, the Stockholm knifes into the side of the Doria and, and, and then reverses engines and there's a, a mortal wound in the side of this Italian liner, this, this plush, luxurious Italian liner. Nobody knew, nobody knew that that ship would stay afloat until 10 o'clock the next day. I think it was 52 people were killed by the collision. And then the miracle baby, where there was actually a, a, a child, not a baby, a young girl, asleep on the Andrea Doria. The Stockholm cut right into the ship when it backed up. She ended up sleeping on the Stockholm, on the deck of the Stockholm. So there's a lot of stories about that that's amazing. Imagine if you were on the ship. 
And everybody is evacuated, all the other people. And you realize what an opportunity this is. And so you go around through the ship and you gather all the things that have been left behind. And you pile them up on the deck. Think of what you have. Think of the luggage left behind, the clothes left behind, the jewelry left behind, the possessions left behind. And you pile it on that ship and for just a little while, you are fabulously wealthy. You are the richest man in the Atlantic. And then the ship goes down. Would it have been wiser to be on a lifeboat? Or wiser to have gathered all those goods to have and enjoy for just a little bit of time? We're all going to go one day into eternity. The important issue facing every one of us is where will you be? This is foolish because if I'm going to exist forever, then how foolish it is to be blinded by things that are only temporary. And part of what is happening in American society today, I will not be critical of other societies, but part of what is happening in American society today is a studied attempt to not think about eternity. I hope you'll break that mold tonight and ask yourself the question that James Campbell asked people almost every time he met them, is my soul saved? Because this is something that will never happen. You will never gain the whole world if you were to you'd still be a loser. Notice, please, that the Lord Jesus is telling us about something that could actually happen. You could lose your own soul. Millions of people have lost their souls, as far as I know. The Bible has records of them. The Bible, the Bible gives us the stories of people who died, tells us where they went. The Bible tells us about people coming near the end of life and, and bewailing their folly of having lived without God or without salvation. The Lord Jesus, in his parables, painted for us the picture in fact, the Gospel of Matthew begins and ends with parables that show us the difference between a human being who is wise and a human being who is foolish. A human being who is wise prepares for the death that's coming and secures the salvation of his soul. The person who is foolish ignores that. The person who is wise prepares for the coming of the Lord. The person who is foolish lives as if Jesus is never coming back. So are you wise or foolish? Because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have sat in gospel meetings and have apparently lost their soul. What shall a prophet a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There is the example in the Bible, for instance, of someone closely related to a wonderful believer. David the psalmist contributed a vast amount of psalms to the Bible's largest book, 150 psalms. The vast majority of them, the percentage of them, written by David. It was David's son Absalom who, hanging from a tree with the five darts that Joab had thrown into his heart, died in his sins. His father was the, the, the sweet psalmist of Israel, but that didn't save Absalom. doesn't matter how privileged a person can be. I, I, I counted a privilege that I grew up listening to wonderful gospel preaching. And I've thanked God many, many times that as a result of tent meetings like this, my children grew up hearing some of the best preachers in the world who would come through New Jersey preaching the gospel. That's a great privilege. I know a man by name who listened to the greatest preacher and the greatest preaching of all time. 
His name was Judas. And for likely three and a half years, he listened to the paramount preacher in all of time, in all of history, the Lord Jesus. And Judas lost his soul. You say, well, you know, there's people praying for me. I, I, I certainly take comfort in that. And I certainly hope that uh, God sees that. And that sort of like shelters me. There were people that Abraham was praying for, like Lot's wife and Lot's daughters. And Abraham was called the friend of God, but his prayers did not bring salvation to those people. You say, well, I'm so familiar with the gospel and there's so much that I know. And, and certainly that, that knowledge is going to benefit me and eventually I will be saved. One of the most remarkable conversions, not just in the Bible, but in all of history, one of the most remarkable conversions was the conversion of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel one day stood in the party room of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson and reminded him about his grandfather's conversion and reminded him, you knew all these things. You knew all these things. And yet the God in whose hand your breath is and whose are all your ways you have not glorified. So you'll understand that there are tremendous privileges and links and prayers and opportunities to be saved that God gives to people. But that does not mean you will not lose your soul. That could actually happen unless you go after salvation, unless you turn to the Lord Jesus. And I'm so thankful to tell you that there's something that could certainly happen tonight. You could leave here with the salvation of your soul by trusting Christ. This monumentally important thing could be settled tonight. This invaluable thing, your eternal destiny, could be resolved tonight. The greatest problem you're facing, you would have the solution for it tonight by turning to the Lord Jesus and trusting him. Allow me just to close by giving you two statements from the Bible. We read about the way of salvation and the day of salvation. The way of salvation and the day of salvation. The death of Christ at Calvary opened up the way. It has made salvation possible. If he had not come, if he had not died, we, our souls, we would have been doomed to the lake of fire forever. And nothing we could have done or said or paid or prayed would have made a whit of difference. Our sins, like executioners, would have sent us away into a burning lake forever and forever. But he came. He came from the brightest of glory. What did we sing? Oh, the height and depth of his boundless love and his mercy. Who can tell when he came to the cross from the throne above to save our souls from hell? This is what makes the way of salvation possible. He's opened the door. He's inaugurated the way. He's provided salvation. He's purchased the gift. It's being offered to you tonight. Now, this other expression, the day of salvation. That's when salvation becomes personal, actual. For a human being. It's when they take Christ as Savior. It's when they receive him and are born again. It's when they rely on him and are saved. So if the question that I asked at the beginning. Repeating from Mr. Campbell was is your soul saved. Can I just tell you how you can have the salvation of your soul. That's what Peter wrote. You have the salvation of your soul. Can I tell you how you could have the salvation of your soul. Would you be willing to allow the Lord Jesus to save you? Would you be willing 
to allow the Lord Jesus to do the whole thing. Would you be willing, instead of tonight saying, now if I just do the right thing, I will be saved. If I just see the right thing, I will be saved. If, if God would do something, I, would, I, I could then become saved. When God has done everything, so I'm asking you, would you be willing tonight to let Jesus do the whole thing and get all the credit? Or as the Bible so much better puts it, all the glory for saving your soul. He's ready to do that. He's ready to do that if you'll allow him. So will you let the Lord Jesus here now tonight, will you let the Lord Jesus save your soul from hell? We can thank everyone for coming out to the tent tonight. Um, really appreciate everyone who's made it an effort to be here each night uh, throughout the past couple of weeks. Um, so uh, it's with that that uh, tonight I will too try to be short here to get everyone home um, before any uh, further rain comes or before it gets worse. Um, if you could just read with me a couple of verses found in Romans 10, Romans chapter 10. We're going to read uh, a few verses uh, in this chapter tonight. Um, from Romans 10, well-known verses, uh, and I'd like to speak the gospel from these uh, verses tonight. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, we're going to read at verse 6. Romans 10 and verse 6. We're going to read uh, two or three verses here. Romans 10, verse 6. This is what um, the Apostle Paul has written down. Romans 10 and verse 6 says this, but, but the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise. So this is righteousness that is speaking here. It says here, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We'll read that last verse one more time. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well-known verses. I was just thinking about them, speaking on them tonight. Sometimes at the back of the tent over the past two and a half weeks, um, some people are approachable, some people are not. Some people want to talk, and some people don't. Uh, that's just a case of gospel meetings. It can be, uh, can be difficult sometimes. We preach for an hour here, and then You'd like to have a, a discussion, uh, but, but more often than not, sometimes when I talk to people and I say, would you like to be saved? I say that to my audience tonight. Would you like to be saved? I had a cousin who was here and he said after gospel meetings, they would go around, they would ask people, do you want to be saved? Would you like to be saved? I, I think we just take it that it's going to happen at some time, but everyone comes and goes from 10 meetings and sometimes people still leave on the road down to help. But if I said, do you want to be saved? I say that to people sometimes right around that round table back there when it's not raining now. I've said it to a lot, at least two or three or four people during these tent meetings. Would you like to be saved? And 
usually the response that comes back is, I'm not ready. Or I, I heard a man say, you know what? I'm not, I'm not that good. Or I'm, I'm really not, I'm not like the ideal candidate for this. Meaning not good enough. And another man said, you know, he goes, I don't know enough yet. I really don't know enough to be saved. And, and, and I recognize this, that people are not saved and don't want to be saved because it still starts with them. They're still fixed on themselves. They're still thinking about this, about me. Because you would be saved tonight if you realize, as we've been hearing, it all starts and it all ends with Jesus Christ. I never have to, we say, I'm not, I can't, I don't, I still, and, and it's, it's this pronoun, I, that gets in the way, because I take it that I have to offer something, and yet salvation, devoid of me, and yet it takes away my sins. And so we read here, succinctly put, this statement, I, I, I love the words of Paul here, because he seems to sum it up so that even a kid could understand it tonight. So if you're a child tonight, don't, don't, don't not pay attention to me. If you're young tonight, anybody in the tent, it's never too young to be saved. You're never too young. I used to, we, we always talked to someone and he would say, you know, uh, what, when did you get saved? And he would say, oh, I have until that age. He's past that age now. It's never too early to get saved. And Paul says here, he says, what do these, the words we call them, and I want to talk about the right words, the good words, God's words, and my words, and I'll go quickly. The right words. Paul says here, what are the words of righteousness? What are they? Well, they actually don't, they tell us what not to say. Don't say that, right? Don't say that. I remember, uh, what did I used to say when I was growing up? I would say, oh, I swear I didn't do that. My dad would go, don't say that. And I thought, it was one time I was told, and after that there were beatings, so I never said it again. You know, don't say that, we hear. Don't say that. Well, what does it say here not to say? It says, don't say, who's going to ascend to go get the Lord Jesus? Who's going to go up to get him and bring him down? I looked up distances that men have gone up. Uh, there was a man, uh, his name was, uh, last name Baumgartner, Felix Baumgartner, went 124,000 feet up into the atmosphere, uh, way above our atmosphere, and he jumped out of a, he jumped out of this, this, this capsule, 124,000 feet, and, and landed back in the earth and lived. I was wondering where he landed, New Mexico. That's not where I would have chosen, but he still, he, he 124, I don't even, I couldn't have aimed for the Atlantic Ocean. 124,000, he said, what a height to come down and live. There was another lady, her name was Julianne Diller, and in Christmas Eve, 1971, there was an airplane going over Peru, and it broke apart, and her seat, she was still fastened to her seat in a part of the plane that had broken off the rest of the plane, and she fell over 10,000 feet, and she lived. She lived 10,000 feet. She came down, and there she was alive in the, the middle of nowhere in South America. But I'd say the greatest one that I read about was this man, Michael Mike, his name was Michael Holmes, and, and we read about him, 14,000 feet, he was, uh, he was doing some skydiving. I've actually gone skydiving, but I was attached to a guy, and he had a parachute. And if that parachute didn't work, he had a safety parachute. I didn't wear one. I just wore him. But at 14,000 feet, he jumped out, 
He had just gotten his license and neither his regular parachute nor his, nor his backup parachute, neither one of them. And he fell 14,000 feet, almost three miles, no parachutes, landed on a blackberry bush and lit. Lit. We're so impressed when people from such huge heights are able to descend and live. No, 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 no. Here's the most impressive thing. Jesus Christ came from a height unknown down to this world, and we are impressed not because he lived, but because he died. The Bible says you don't have to go get him. He already came. He already came. We're looking for something to do. What can I do? I've said to people, and I, I say it again, if Jesus Christ sat down next to you and said to you, would you like to be saved? If you say no tonight, you'd say no to him. Because the Bible, the Bible declares his words we read to you. And then says, who, who goes down to get Christ? I looked up some stats. What's the deepest that men have gone? In South Africa, they've gone down 12,000 feet. For what reason? For gold. What else would, would bring a person down 12,000 feet? Gold. Just go down there to get gold. And you'd say, who went deeper? Christ Jesus died. The one who was the author of life laid in a tomb. You'd say no other man went farther down. Did he go down there for gold? No, he went down there for the ungodly, for ungodly people. And so our, our verse tells us, we say, if I could only go up to get him, or if I could only go down and bring him back. And the Bible says, these are the words that speak about righteousness. You don't have to do anything. It already happened. He already came. He already died. He was buried. And he rose again. You'd say, it already happened. And all that it awaits is for you to believe it. For you to believe it. That something that we would say, we would be so, it would be remarkable if a man could ascend to get Christ and say, we need you to come. We need you to come down. Or if someone could go down and say, bring him back. And yet he did it himself. He came. And we read about these right words. We read about good words. The gospel words, Paul writes here about the word of faith, gospel words. And he speaks about if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, we often use that, but we forget sometimes. The Bible tells us uh, in the book of Matthew, Matthew 15, I think it is, it says that actually what, what, what makes us sinners, what, what makes us unclean is what comes out of our mouth, what comes right out of the mouth. What, what comes from these lips is what makes this, is what makes this wrong. The Bible also says the heart in the book of Jeremiah, it's, it's wicked. It's desperately wicked. I always hear about Christians asking other Christians to give their heart to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want your heart. Never did. Never wanted it. Never asked for it. Why? Because it's wicked. Never wanted it. You hear someone say that, you turn them back to Jeremiah and say, why would God ever want a wicked thing? And yet our lips, they only speak perverse things. Our hearts, full of wicked things. And you'd say these two things are then used. And Paul says the gospel, it asks you in your mouth, in your words, right? It says to confess that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean to confess? It, it, it means to say the same thing that God says. To take sides with God. You ever hear that? Sometimes you go into the court of law and you would hear testimony and they would say, as testimony would be spoken, do you agree with that? As someone would testify against you or against you and you're standing there in a the court of law, they would say, do you agree with that? 
And your answer would then have to, it would either make you of guilt or of innocence. And you'd say, God says, when he says, you are a sinner, you are ungodly. When he says that, that you're wicked, that you're deceitful, that, that the sins that are in us, they make us slaves to sins. When God says that, would we agree with him? The Bible says if we would, we would be saved. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We read that, that we would agree with him. The Bible says, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. To believe something. The heart is just a, just a picture of the mind. To believe, to truly stake my life on something. If, if, if I said to you, where does someone who dies in their sins go? You would say, they go to hell. Well, how do you know that? How, how do you know that? I, 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 I ask people this all the time. I, I say to people, if you died with about 4 million sins, where do those people go? Inevitably, people say they go down. They go down to a place called hell. And I say, where in the world did you hear something like that? In the same document that tells me that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So you can believe the bad, but how about tonight you believe the good? Because the same Bible that tells me my sins are taking me to hell said that Christ died for every single one of them. And if I could take sides with God and believe that his word is true, if I could believe tonight that God raised him from the dead, brought him back from the grave, the only man who knows the way out of a cemetery, the Bible says you could take God's word. The right words tell us what not to say, what not to do. Don't go try to get him. Don't go to try to bring him back. We don't have to do anything. Those were what the righteous words say. Not only that, but the gospel words tell us that we can believe the good news of the gospel, the good words of the gospel. God's word tells us this. God's word tells us that what he has said is true. And, and, and it is this intention that if the whole world could become guilty, the whole world could be saved. But unfortunately, the world is full of people that are still claiming innocence. And yet the Bible says God's word. You know, in our Bible, in Luke 16, we get an account of a man who is in hell. It's a rare part of the New Testament of a man who is down there. And I'm always astounded every time I read it about his words. He says this. He has five brothers who are still at home. And he says, he goes, you got to send. He goes, he goes, he goes, my brothers, they got to hear this. They can't come to this place. I don't want them here. I often think about people uh, in, in your lives. I often hear people tell me, they go, I won't believe this because I know someone who's died and didn't believe this. This is the only message that even people in hell tell you to believe. It's the only message that heaven tells you to believe. It's the only message that's preached on earth that tells you you can know heaven and not go down. And yet that man, he says that day, he goes, send them someone from the dead. Send them someone from the dead. If someone comes back from the dead, they will believe. That's what he says. He goes, send them someone, raise someone up and send them to my family. They'll believe it. And you know what the answer is? If they won't believe what's written in the Bible, they won't believe it if they see a dead man. If they won't believe what's written in the Bible, it wouldn't matter if the loose cemetery 
or, or George Washington Cemetery was empty tonight and we saw 5,000 dead men walking, it will not matter because that can't save you. God's word can. Dead man walking tonight would not save you because he'll die again. But a man who defeated death, Jesus Christ, it's him who saves. It's God's word. And finally, we read this. My words, my words tonight, not the right words. The right words tell me, don't try to go up. Don't try to go down. Don't try to do it all. The right words tell me I can be satisfied with who God is satisfied with. That I can place my trust in the one whom God has trusted. Those were the right words tell me. The good words of the gospel tell me it's with my mouth that I believe. It's, it's in my heart that I believe these things, that I, I stake my life on them. I realize that Christ died for me to be satisfied and to believe it. You say, you're already believing parts of the Bible. I often look at a crowd and I'm astounded sometimes. I could say everyone in a crowd sometimes will believe that the whale swallowed Jonah. But yet there are some people who aren't going to heaven. That's ridiculous. There are children in the meeting, and you believe that the whale swallowed Jonah, and he survived for three days, but you're not saved. You're believing some of the most difficult parts of the Bible, and yet the good news of the gospel tells me that Christ died for your sins. You could believe it. You could be saved. And finally, it says, my words. What is it? My words. I, that's what Paul says. He says, you will be saved. You will be saved. It's not a, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's John 3, right, that tells us, John 3 and 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 10 tells us, the Lord Jesus' words, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Acts chapter 2 tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 4 and 12 tells us, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 16 tells us, when they ask him, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Are you saved? Are you saved from your sins? Are you saved from a meaningless life? Are you saved from eventually going down to a place called hell? Are you saved from these things? You say, I sure hope so. That means absolutely nothing. If Christ died so that I could hope so, his death was in vain. I tell you of the greatest guarantee known to man tonight. Don't ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. Don't descend down into the abyss to bring Christ up. But what saith the Bible? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You could go from believing in God to believing God to believing in a man called Jesus Christ, to believing Jesus Christ, what he says. Everyone in this tent believes there is a man named David. But to believe me that what I'm saying is true is something completely different. And the Bible says it is worth believing tonight because this is the only message that tells us salvation is offered because Christ died 
He was buried and he rose again. You don't have to lift a finger. You don't have to move a step. You don't have to give a penny or a prayer. You don't have to do any penance. The Bible says you simply have to take God at his word and agree with him about who you are and about who his son is. Me a sinner, himself for me. The Bible says you will be saved. I, I, I have to address such a vast audience tonight, and I have to fight with all kinds of distractions in a meeting like this. It's unfortunate. There'll be no distractions in eternity. There won't be rain to, to, to muffle my voice. There won't be kids crying. There won't be children turning around. There'll be no distractions in eternity. It would be an unfortunate thing to know how to be saved and to not have it tonight. To know that you could be forgiven tonight and to be distracted by such small things from getting God's salvation, from getting God's son. Because this is a message that tells you, you can have it. You can be guaranteed of it. All because one man did all the work and he saves. And I don't save myself. He saves. And he does so because he gave his life for you. And he died. That he might save you. It's a great word. And it's something you could say tonight. I, I've often said that to people who aren't saved. Just say that to yourself. I'm saved. I'm looking at people tonight who have told me they are, and yet their life says nothing about that. Their life says nothing. Your life wouldn't, wouldn't be enough to convict you of anything. You'd say to say it and to know it because God says it, and God does the saving. You can give up on being saved yourself. You can give up on something that's worthless and have everything that is guaranteed by the Bible, that is guaranteed by the God of heaven, Guaranteed because it's written here. Guaranteed because Christ does the saving. I don't. And you could be saved tonight simply through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.